There have been times in this planet's history when being a Christian might just cost you your life. Now, there are still places where that's true. Just witness the persecution some Christians face in the more radical corners of the Middle East. But today we're going to look at a particularly embarrassing chapter of Christian history when Christians actually persecuted each other. And we'll see what God has to say about that. Welcome back to Reading Revelation, a special series we're doing here at The Voice of Prophecy designed to take you through the whole book of Revelation and give you some of the tools you need to understand this mysterious book for yourself. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra, and the truth is, I don't think the book of Revelation is all that mysterious at all. I mean, sure, there are parts of it you have to work on before you can understand, and I don't claim to have all the answers. But I have discovered one essential key that makes the book as easy to read as any other book of the Bible. Now, do you want to know what that key is? It's really pretty simple. All you have to do is read the whole Bible. I don't know what you're thinking. The whole Bible, that's a lot of work. Well, yes, it is. But tell me what else in life is worth having that comes easy. And believe me, reading the whole Bible is well worth the effort. This is actually what made a believer out of me. And when I came face to face with what it says in this book, in the book of Revelation, I was left with no choice but to believe. It was obvious that God is quite real. Now, the reason you have to read the whole Bible to understand Revelation is the fact that roughly two-thirds of the language in Revelation has been borrowed from other parts of the Bible, and the Old Testament in particular. What we have in Revelation is not just a random collection of abstract symbols. Almost every symbol, every concept can be found in other parts of the Bible. And when you go back and find those other parts, it usually explains what the symbol means. So, for example, when you get a little bit of time, try comparing Daniel chapter 7 with Revelation chapter 13. And you'll see that John didn't just pull this stuff out of his hat. He's using the same symbols, the same language as Daniel. And when we eventually get to chapter 13 in this series, I'll show you how easy that passage can be to understand. But today we're in Revelation 2, and we're looking at the seven messages that Jesus gives to seven churches in Asia Minor. And we're on number four, the message to the church of Thyatira. So let's dig right into it now, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, this is the fourth time that Jesus introduces himself to one of the churches. And as we've noticed in our previous studies, for each church, he uses some of the language from Revelation chapter 1. And in every case, the description of Jesus is perfectly suited to the church he's addressing, both the literal church back in the first century and the prophetic period the church points to at some point in the future. Now, if all of this is coming as a surprise to you, you haven't heard this stuff before, you might want to go back and get the previous episodes so you can catch up. You can find them at VOP.com. But generally speaking, what you're going to find is that the seven churches each represent a period of history between the first century 
and the second coming of Christ. The whole thing is a prophecy. Now, we've already moved through the first three periods, down past the so-called conversion of the Emperor Constantine, and now we're moving into the Middle Ages. Or, or maybe it would be more accurate to describe it as the Dark Ages. When we looked at the Church of Pergamos the last time we met, we discovered that it foreshadowed this tragic time when pagan philosophy and political intrigue started to make its way into the Christian Church. We discovered the letter was an honest assessment of the problems the Church would face, and the letter meant that God knew, well ahead of time, that Christianity would face some really serious challenges. Today, historians look back and shake their heads at the atrocities committed in the name of Christ during the Dark Ages, and they shake their heads as if our bad behavior is a big surprise. Now, of course, what happened should be a cause for embarrassment, but it shouldn't be a surprise because God actually predicted it. And if you read through the rest of Revelation in the book of Daniel, you'll discover that he actually predicted it with a stunning amount of detail. Our sins may have broken the heart of God, but they didn't surprise him, because he knew the truth about sinful human nature, and he knew there were dark forces at work trying to throw the whole Christian enterprise off the rails. So, now we have a message from Jesus Christ to the church of Thyatira, and Jesus introduces himself as the one who has flaming eyes and feet of brass. You and I might refer to the Dark Ages, but the lights for God have always been on. He's always been able to see the truth. Not only does God see everything, he also throws light on the situation at the same time. He adds his own illumination, and he tells us what's really going on. What happens in the dark happens in broad daylight as far as God is concerned. What happens in secret may as well be on CNN because God doesn't miss a thing. God the Son has eyes of fire that both see the truth and light it up so everybody else can see it too. And the message to the Church of the Dark Ages is pretty obvious. You and I might have run secret torture chambers. We might have held secret trials for so-called heretics. But none of what we did in dark places was secret to God. He saw every bit of injustice. He saw every lie we told. And he saw every helpless victim that we committed to the flames. Nothing we did was hidden from God. God's eyes are wide open. And if you read through the scriptures, you'll find a number of occasions where it says God opens our eyes too. He both sees and illuminates. But you'll also notice that Jesus has feet made of fine brass. Now, the interesting thing about brass is that it's a combination. You get brass by mixing copper and zinc. It's got two natures blended into one. And if you think about it, that's a perfect description of Jesus. He has two natures blended into one person. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God, but at the same time fully human. He is God in human flesh. And interestingly enough, this is the only place in the seven letters where Jesus describes himself as the Son of God. He might be fully human, but in this case, he underlines his divine authority. Now, feet in the ancient world were a symbol of ownership. If you could step on something, it's because you owned it. 
Back in Genesis 13, God says to Abraham, hey, go for a walk, and everything your feet touch will become your property. Now, this whole planet is Christ's property. You and I gave it away when we surrendered our dominion in the Garden of Eden, but Jesus, the last Adam, won our planet back through his perfect life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. The planet belongs to him, and he's laid claim to it. But he hasn't quite taken full possession of it, and that's because he's waiting for the judgment to be finished. If you go back and read the seventh chapter of Daniel, you can see this clearly. First the judgment sits, and then the Son of Man is given a kingdom that lasts forever. So when Jesus finally returns in Zechariah chapter 14, after all the phases of judgment are finished, that's when his feet finally touch the ground, and he takes possession of the planet forever. Now, I know some of you will want more detail on how all those last-day events take place, but just be patient with me. It'll all come out as we work our way through the book of Revelation. Right now, what I really want you to notice is the way the Bible emphasizes Jesus' feet. It might just be Jesus' way of reminding the Thyatira Christians that he not only sees everything and knows everything, he owns it all, too. Now, I am way past due for a break, but don't abandon me because we are about to dive into the heart of this letter, and I don't think you're going to want to miss this. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Like, where is God when people suffer? Or can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. You are listening to The Voice of Prophecy. My name is Sean Boonstra. I'm your host. And right now we are about to start reading Jesus' message to the Church of Thyatira. And this letter is a little bit longer than the first three, so we might not have time to examine every little detail. But here we go now, picking up in verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So, we get an acknowledgement that even in the heart of the Dark Ages, God still has faithful believers. And history tells us that is absolutely correct. There has never been a time in history when God did not have faithful, Bible-believing Christians living somewhere on the planet, keeping the flames of the gospel alive. And if you want a really good example, you might want to pick up a very old book by a guy by the name of J.E. Wiley. It's called History of the Waldenses. I I just went and checked online, and you can get reprints of this to this day. I think there's even a Kindle edition for less than a dollar. It's well worth reading. God has always had faithful people. Now we move into verse 20, though, where Jesus mentions his deep concern for the church. Listen to this. Nevertheless. I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. 
Now remember that all through the Bible, and the Old Testament in particular, sexual immorality and adultery are used as a metaphor to describe turning away from God. And during the Dark Ages, Christians were guilty of all sorts of horrific atrocities. And I've already mentioned some of those, so I I won't belabor the point, except to say that what we did was no better than the stuff the ancient Israelites did shortly before the Babylonian captivity. According to the Old Testament prophets, the nation of Israel compromised so badly that they even offered their children as human sacrifices. Now, I seriously doubt they went from faithful worship to placing their children in the arms of the idol Molech overnight that it happened that quickly. That kind of compromise tends to build over a number of generations. One generation compromises a little bit, the next generation compromises a little bit more, and down the road, the church does unthinkable things, and they still defend what they're doing as the will of God. You might remember one occasion when Jesus warns his disciples in John 16 that the time would come that whoever kills them would think they were offering God service. You see, when Christianity goes bad, it doesn't happen because people are just rejecting God outright. It usually happens because of little self-serving compromises that build up over time. And eventually, many people are shocked to discover that biblical Christianity actually disagrees with what they thought Christianity was. Now, just before we leave verse 20, let me talk about Jezebel for just a moment. And really, this is information that you ought to tuck away for further use because it'll become a lot more obvious when we get into Revelation chapter 12. But for right now, here's what I want you to notice. Back in Elijah's day, the king of Israel, a guy by the name of Ahab, married a pagan queen named Jezebel. And of course, that was completely against God's counsel. It was an illicit marriage, a compromise between the faith of God and outright paganism. Of course, as you may know, that didn't end well for Ahab. Instead of his pagan wife Jezebel turning her heart toward God, Ahab ended up turning against God. Now that should serve as a warning for Christians who are tempted to become unequally yoked. You have no idea how many people have come to me saying, okay, look, I know he's not a believer, but I think God put that man in my life to win him to Christ. Okay, I'll give you that. That might be true. But I'll tell you this, God didn't put you in that man's life to marry him. The Bible is crystal clear. Do not marry unbelievers. And God won't change his mind about that. Now, if you happen to find yourself in that situation, unequally yoked, you can still take heart. God knows what you're dealing with. But if you're at the point right now where you're contemplating marrying an unbeliever, just stop it. Go back and read the story of Ahab. You are risking way too much. Anyway, Jezebel was a wicked pagan queen whose influence over Israel was undeniable. As you read through the story, you discover that the nation of Israel actually came to the point where they had hundreds of priests leading out in Baal worship. Baal was a Canaanite idol. Ahab the king actually built a shrine to Baal. So the prophet Elijah declares that God is going to send a drought on the land, and then God sends Elijah into hiding because, of course, Jezebel wants him dead. Now here's the really interesting part, and we'll look at this again on another day, but Elijah in that story goes into hiding for three and a half years. In the Hebrew calendar, that would have been 1,260 days because they had a 360-day year. The prophet of God went hiding. 
There's a drought in the land, and the royal family wants the prophet dead. Now, when you compare that story to Revelation 12, it becomes obvious that Elijah is a key to understanding this whole book. Just listen to this language. This is Revelation 12:13. Now, when the dragon, now that's the devil, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's a symbol for God's people, who gave birth to the male child. What it's saying is that the devil goes after the church that had waited all those centuries for Messiah to come. Revelation 12, rather, 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. A time, times, and half a time is just three and a half years. The book of Revelation predicted that after Jesus went back to heaven, the devil would turn his anger against the Christian church, and the church would have to hide in the wilderness for three and a half prophetic years, or 1,260 days. Now, that just happens to be the exact length of the Dark Ages, from the moment we officially made the church a political entity to the moment that system came to a grinding halt in the late 18th century. We don't really have time for that today, but when we get a little further in our study, I'll show you exactly what happened, and I think you'll be stunned by the intricate detail that God gives us centuries in advance. If you go through Revelation and the book of Daniel, you'll find this same time period mentioned again and again and again and again. Sometimes it's three and a half years, sometimes it's 1,260 days, sometimes it's 42 months, but it's always the same amount of time and it describes a long period of time when the church is actually corrupt and faithful believers have to watch their backs. But really the point for now is Jezebel. God predicted a time when the church would blend itself with non-Christian pagan ideas, just like Ahab marrying Jezebel. And God predicted that Christianity would go off the rails. This is pointing forward to that time. Now, we have got to take another quick break, and we still have about eight verses to look at, so don't go away. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning, just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Okay, we are back from the break, and we've really got to get moving if I want to cover this whole letter. So let's look at Revelation 2.21. It says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. So, here you have more language describing the spiritual adultery of the Christian church during the Dark Ages. Verse 23, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, 
and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, there's a really mysterious reference. I will kill her children with death. In the Old Testament story of Jezebel, the whole family eventually died. But historically speaking, it also fits the Middle Ages. The church itself had gone off the rails, we were doing horrible things, and suddenly, from about the 14th century to the 18th century, Europe fell on really tough times. We had the pneumonic plague, and then the Black Plague, where the most conservative estimate puts the death toll at 25 million. And that might not have been a matter of God bringing disease on the Western world as a kind of punishment, even though I'm not willing to rule that out. But it might also be a matter of people rejecting God and reaping the natural consequences of a world without God. Either way, history matches the prophecy. Verse 24. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. Now I want you to notice again that God has faithful people, even in the midst of the Dark Ages, during this time of horrible apostasy. There have always been godly people. There will always be godly people. Sometimes they're a very small minority, like in the days of Noah or the days of Abraham, but they've always been there. Sometimes that little minority pays with its life, like Abel. But God always has a remnant. That's an important word in the book of Revelation. God always has a remnant, a group of people who will not compromise. Verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. In other words, if you stick with Jesus, you will survive the end of this world. When all the nations of this planet are swept aside, when God finally eradicates corrupt human governments and replaces them with the kingdom of Christ, you will be there. And Revelation 20 says that you get to live and reign with Jesus. Really, that's an unbelievable thought. You and I are sinners, and we deserve nothing but the wages of sin. And yet still, because God loves us so deeply, he offers us his kingdom. Come, rule with me, God says. Now, verse 27. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. Now, if you go back to the book of Daniel and read chapter 2, you'll find this language matches that chapter exactly. In Daniel 2, the kingdoms of the world are finally crushed to powder and then replaced by a great stone, which represents the kingdom of Christ. That stone fills the whole earth. You know, the amazing thing about that particular prophecy back in Daniel 2, if you read through it, you discover that this is almost finished. We're almost there. You and I are living at the very end of it. And that makes me think that one of these days we should probably go through Daniel 2 on this show as well. Today we need to stay focused on this letter here uh, to the church of Thyatira. Let's look at verse 28. Knowing we're near the end and the kingdom of Christ replaces all the kingdoms of this earth. Verse 28, And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, historically speaking, 
There were people during the Middle Ages who started to stand up against widespread apostasy. There were people who identified the corruption in the Christian church and actually called for change. You had people like Wycliffe and Huss driving people back to the faith of the Bible. You had Martin Luther nailing his theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. One by one, these lights started going on all over Europe well before the close of the prophetic Dark Ages, before the 1,260 years were actually over. In, in the letter to Thyatira, Jesus is acknowledging that genuine Christians were up against some really tough times. And before he closes the letter, he makes a promise. This isn't going to last forever. You will receive the morning star. Now, historically, Christians have understood this to be a reference to the beginning of change, to the beginning of the Reformation. It's not by accident that we still call men like John Wycliffe the morning star of the Reformation. We think of him as the keeping of God's promise. The morning star, you see, comes over the horizon during the darkest part of the night, just before morning breaks. It's a clear and vibrant signal that the long night is nearly finished. You know, if you go back and look at Revelation chapter 1, you'll see the angels of the seven churches are also called stars. Angels are stars. It, it's often used as a symbol for people in authority, for people whose official job it is to spread the gospel. Sometimes the Bible uses stars to represent literal heavenly angels, like it does in Job 38, where it says the morning stars sang together when God created the world. But you'll notice the human leaders of the seven churches are also called angels. The Greek word is agalos. It just means messenger. In one sense, angels can be human messengers, or they might be heavenly angels as well. An angel might be a heavenly being or a human being. It's just a messenger. And messengers who are proclaiming and celebrating the goodness of God are represented as stars. In Daniel chapter 12, the Bible says that one day God will make his faithful people shine like the stars forever and ever. Those who dedicated their lives to sharing the gospel of Christ will be stars in God's kingdom for all eternity. But you know, the ultimate morning star is none other than Jesus himself. The Bible calls him the day star. It calls him the star that came out of Jacob. Second Peter 1 says that Jesus is the morning star that arises in our hearts. Because of all the messengers that showed this world the absolute goodness of God, there is nobody who compares to the Son of God. And here in this letter, in the depths of apostasy during the Dark Ages, during a time when being an actual biblical Christian was really difficult, Jesus says, hang in there, because I'm going to give you the morning star. The ultimate reward for the believer is Jesus himself. The book of Revelation says that one day God is going to wipe away every tear, and Jesus will literally dwell with us forever. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, it says in Revelation 21, verse 3. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. There will be no more death, no more sorrow no more pain. Write this down, God tells John, for these words are true and faithful. Now, I don't know about you, but I have found very little in this world that is true and faithful. Human government, it's always going to let you down. Family and friends, tragically, they'll, they'll let you down too. Even people at church 
will let you down because they're human. But the bright and morning star, he will never do that. He knows what you've been living through. Jesus sees with eyes of fire that illuminate your situation, and his feet of brass tell us that he can identify with what it means to be human. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your future. He gets it. He understands. And you can throw yourself on him. And Jesus' promise is spectacular. His whole kingdom can belong to you. Hang in there, he says. Don't give up. I'm coming soon. My name is Sean Boonstra. You've been listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.